forever. Dog. Hey, we have a great episode today featuring Aida Kroll, Marja Lewis, Ryan, and Annabelle Oaks. And before we get to that, we've got a chat with our longtime pal, Daylin Rodriguez, who's uh, showrunning for the first time. She's showrunning um, Queen of the South. She's co-showrunning that show. Uh, and we're so excited for her, and we talk about that a little bit. Before we get into this week's episode, I just want you to make a note that this was recorded uh, a couple months ago, uh, before Aida Kroll left as the co-creator or co-developer of Why the Last Man. So we do talk about why a little bit, uh, but this is all before she was off the project. Uh, and you can really hear her enthusiasm for the project. It's a bummer that she and Michael Green are not on it anymore. Um, but just so you know, this is a little bit dated, uh, but it really is a great conversation. But uh, before all that, please enjoy this chat with Dalen Rodriguez. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Uh, I'm talking to our old friend... Our longtime pal, Dalen Rodriguez. Uh, Dalen, you are now the showrunner uh, of Queen of the South. Technically, I'm co-showrunner. co-showrunner. I'm co-showrunning with uh, my lovely, uh, not my writing partner. We mm-hmm. were uh, we were put together to do this very difficult endeavor. <laughs> yeah. But ben, uh, ben Lobato has been on the show since the first season, and I came in on the second season as a co-EP. Oh, nice. Um, so you've you've been living with, and this is the fourth season that's about to premiere. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, and remind me, what is the premiere date? It's June sixth on USA at ten p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. Great. People should watch it. It's a great show already. And um, let's talk a little bit about making this jump. You know, we I had you on the podcast. It feels like ages ago. Ages ago. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we were all just kids. Um, but you you had been already even then working you know working your way through the ranks you were a valued member of a bunch of different writing staffs Um, and I'm curious to hear about like stuff you took from the staffs you had been on to now having this opportunity of co-running this show yeah sure I I mean I think in um I think we touched on this a really long time ago um just the the idea that you know I've I'm I'm pretty seasoned. I've been at this for a while. It's taken me 19 years to become a showrunner. That's wild. Yeah, it's wild. I think um, uh, it was a combination of things. And one of the things is, unfortunately, what happens to diverse writers in Hollywood Mm -hmm. a little bit. We we get stuck in sort of the lower ranks because we become sort of a free diverse hire for shows. So there's no incentive to... uh, get diverse writers to move up the ladder. So there's a little bit of a pipeline problem in uh, mid-level ranks. So I think that that's why it's taken me so long to sort of move up to the upper echelons of uh, staffs. Let's uh, talk about that. And, you know, I didn't want to get too deep too fast, but no worries. (laughs) let's let's talk about that for a second, because I think it is an important issue. Um, And you, you know, a, a diverse writer is often, as you say, a free hire for the show. It doesn't come out of the budget. Um, did you have to repeat levels multiple times? Yes, I did. I actually, I repeated staff writer twice and mm-hmm. story editor three times. Wow. So, yeah, but look, the, you know what the silver lining of it, to go back to your original question, is when you're sort of under the radar for so long um, and not that much is expected of you because you're a lower level writer. So even if you get like three pitches on the board, you're like, yay, I won, <laughs> you know, Um 
get to learn in uh, in an environment it, it, with much less pressure mm-hmm. to, to an extent because you're not expected to be performing at a co-producer or supervising or co-EP level or producer level, right, mid-level or upper level. So if you... By the time I was story editor the third time, I was I was working at a much higher level than what my title was. Do you know what I'm saying? So yeah. the thing is that I learned a lot from sort of repeating these levels. And I actually purposely repeated supervising producer. I didn't want to jump into co-EP too quickly without feeling that I was totally prepared for that title. Um, oh, interesting. And um, yeah, I, I did that on purpose that one year. And um I'm really happy I did that because I feel now that I'm co-show running Queen of the South. I don't feel surprised by the job. Um, it's a difficult job. I actually love it. <laughs> I really, really love doing it. But I feel like I have a lot of, I've built a lot of skills through years and years of watching and learning and learning what not to do, what <laughs> I didn't think was great, and then taking lessons from people that I thought were amazing and incorporating those things. And then just bringing my own my own touch to it, my own personality, sure. my own my own morals and beliefs and all that kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Let's let's talk about some of those things that you did pick up from other showrunners you worked under uh, that you thought were positive, that were things you wanted to apply in running a show. Yeah, I I think being judicious with the time in the room is really important. I don't like people to be in the room for nine, 10 hours mm-hmm. <laughs> all day long without breaks after four o'clock, nobody's productive. <laughs> um, I'm not productive. So why do I assume <laughs> that anybody else in the room is productive? <laughs> so um, I also believe that people should get out at a decent time and have a life and go home to their friends and family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've taken that from some showrunners, and it's, I think it's been really helpful. People come go home and think about the show and come in more creatively energized. They have alone time to think about story and character and i think that you get a much more productive worker that's not to say that sometimes you have to stay a little late Mm -hmm. but i'm not a believer of of burning the midnight oil on a show um i think that if you you're not working you need to work smarter and when you work smarter you work better and i think working smarter means being very careful with your time yeah um, so I, I, that's one thing I really learned. Um, I also learned from a showrunner how important it is to try and break as many stories as possible before you start production, because that's when the crunch time gets really bad. Yeah. And so, um, do being able to do that efficiently and well, um, really, really helps your time, uh, constraints as you move into production and to post. So I, I learned a lot there as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Was there a way of breaking story on Queen of the South that you inherited that is different to the way that you might do it left to your own devices? No, uh, Ben and I really sort of changed that process a little bit. Oh, really? Um, the show, the show, I think, um, had become a little bit, uh, for some reason, had become a, a little bit it, very plot driven. Mm-hmm. And the show is plot driven, but it, I think it had become too plot driven. Mm-hmm. So I think we spent a lot more time talking about the whole season arc. We had a very clear idea of what the season finale was when That's we not, went, yeah. when, uh, when Ben and I sat down and worked together on our own. So we knew that we had to build towards that season finale. So the, I feel like the show is 
even more uh, serialized than it's been in the past um, to really be able, it's a very pivotal year for our main character, Teresa, as she's turning slowly into who we call the queen, the woman Mm -hmm. in white. And so it's a really, it was a really pivotal season for her. And we needed to make sure that that character arc uh, was solid and worked. Mm -hmm. So we did a lot more um, seasonal arcing than I think there has been in the past. Yeah. Interesting. And and it sounds like it was much more, you know, as opposed to action or plot based, it was much more about what what this character needed to go through and approaching story well, this, that way. This show is very it's the hardest show I've ever worked on. Really? Because it truly yes, it's the hardest show I've ever worked on. Um and my co showrunner would say the same and every writer on the show would say the same. Because it is a combination of all those things. So to find the correct balance of action and plot yeah. and story and character development is really difficult. <laughs> um when you don't have the luxury of being able to break the entire season before you go into production. Yeah. So, so it's, 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 it's a real, what, what we did this season was to keep sort of, we kept action, but we minimized it a little bit. So it wasn't sort of shoot out of the week or action piece of the week. And we sort of brought in what we like to call, um, more tension to the episodes and more, um, sort of random acts of violence. We kind of, we kind of turned the show a little bit more into like, um, a mob show, a mafia show, oh, wow. sort of like, um, in less sort of like, a Sicario cartel show. The cartel yeah. obviously is what our show is. It is about a Mexican cartel, but we, by moving into new Orleans, it, it afforded us the opportunity to make the show into a little bit more of a, like a more traditional, traditional but in a good way crime mm-hmm. show sure do you know what i mean Absolutely. so so that's that's sort of what we, we what we did this season in the reboot of the show that sounds really exciting and it sounds like Thank a really you. good opportunity for people to jump in who have it's know, a total reboot ben. like people could in. jump in yeah people can jump in and not feel like they're lost that's which great. i think is really great nice and i assume that was you know in part by design um did did uh was most of the writing staff held over from previous seasons as well? Did you get to make new hires too? We did some new hires, but mostly we we uh, we hired. Uh, let's see, we hired one, two, three, four new writers oh, on the show. Okay. That's a yeah. And we kept three. So, and uh, we, and Ben and I were, right. have been there for a while. So right. the, it was still important to us to have continuity because like I said, the show is so difficult yeah. that it's good to have people that have been there and know the, the difficulties of breaking the show. Yeah. And on, with those new writers, um, I assume this was your first time getting to hire new writers. Yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> were you, you were reading, were you taking recommendations? What specifically were you looking for? Um, what were we looking for? Well, we had to replace me because I was the creepy. <laughs> Irreplaceable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we were looking for a number two that had experience and um, that had a lot of experience and had been a, a number two before mm-hmm. and that um, had a had a spec script that sort of was in the vein of our show. Our show was, was difficult to find somebody that had the perfect spec for us. And I think that's for most shows. That goes yeah. for most shows. But, you know, it had some action, it had plot, it was female-led driven. And so, and I had worked with this person before, so there's a level of comfort there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were looking for sort of, um, because it was our first year, it was important for us to sort of be a little bit more comfortable. So we did, I I, I did bring on two people that I have worked before mm-hmm. with before, and I brought on somebody that was an assistant uh, season before. And then we hired a brand new staff writer. I think she was our 
I was, uh, I think we were her first meeting ever. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we hired her That's so cool. out of an, yeah, out of an MFA program. And she's like a rock star and she's on, uh, she's on a new, the spinoff of Riverdale right now. So oh, cool. I, I wish her all the luck in the world. She's badass. Um, so we, uh, we were looking for people that sort of, some people that could bring character work in, some people that had a sort of action background, and then some people that I know, the one person that I worked with that I'd worked in the room that I knew was a really efficient story breaker and, and really good in the room and maybe not had the right spec for the show, but I knew that would be the right uh, person to bring into the room. Mm-hmm. That's great. So that's it's a, co- a combination of stuff. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it sounds like you wound up with a terrific group. Um, let me ask just as we wrap up, um, and again, uh, the premiere is when and where? June 6th, Thursday, June 6th, uh, 10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on USA. Awesome. Tune in live, everybody. Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) Um, let me ask, uh, are you getting a break now? Are you back into the next season? What's happening? So I'm currently uh, co-writing the season finale. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> and, thank you. We are we are uh, shooting episode 11 and prepping episode 12. Oh, my gosh. So we are nearing the ends, and we are in post through August, oh uh, the first week of August. So everything's happening at the same time, and it's crazy and yeah. overwhelming, but fun, and I love it. And <laughs> it's it's been a great experience. I really have had a great time doing it. Oh, I'm so excited for you. I'm excited to watch the show and uh, and to to hear your voice on the show uh, in a bigger way than ever before. That's really cool. Thanks so much, well Ben. And th- thank you very much. And thanks so much for having me on and letting me plug uh, my, my little show <laughs> <laughs> that I'm excited about and proud of. And I hope people tune in. Anytime. I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much, Ben. Bye. Bye. This is it. Hi, everyone. Uh, What I'm going to do, first of all, thank you all for being here. This is a dream team. I've been trying to get you all on this podcast for months, so thank you for being here. For days. Uh, Days. He's been emailing me. Come on. He's like, how about this day? I'm like, sure. That's true. It worked worked out quick. What I would like you to do uh, is introduce yourselves on the microphones so the listener knows what you sound like, and uh, tell us a couple of the things you worked on, including what you are working on now. And Aida, let's start with you. Hey, uh, Aida Mashaka Kroll. Uh, I started out as playwright, um, got my feet wet in television on daytime drama on One Life to Live. I've done uh, Cartoon Network, uh, Star Wars, Clone Wars. Oh, I didn't know. Um, That's cool. I've done historical drama on AMC, Turn. Um, currently working on um, a speculative fiction. A series for FX based on Brian K. Vaughn and Pio Guerra's fabulous Why the Last Man um, called Why. Now we're picked up to series. Congratulations. So in the room. Thank People you. People have been Congrats. waiting for this. The pressure's on. <laughs> no pressure. No, none felt. Good. I hope there's not. I mean, uh, and it's you and Michael Green working on it, too. Correct. Who, yeah. who is a great writer and a lovely Phenomenal. guy. And yeah. Like, I feel like this property, which is so beloved, could not be in better hands. Well, from your lips. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I've been a fan for a while. That's great. And um, Pia and, and Brian have couldn't have been more welcoming in That's terms great. of our vision. So I'm thrilled. Nice. It's good. Well, I wanted to get into that and, and everything, especially the daytime TV stuff. I can't wait <laughs> yeah. to hear about uh, But Marja. Yeah, I have some follow-up questions <laughs> yeah. for sure. Uh, I'm Marja Lewis-Ryan. I am the showrunner of the new L Word on Showtime. Um, I started off as a playwright also. Um, I thought I wanted to be an actor when I was a kid. So um, I wrote my own plays 
Uh, I wrote my first movie that I am in. It came out in 2010. So whenever anybody's like, you came out of nowhere, I'm like, not really. Uh, let's talk out. about that for a second. Brett, we might take this out. <laughs> you were This was Four Face Liar. Yeah. You were at Slamdance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had a movie there that same year, and you guys were, everyone was talking about you. <laughs> no joke. Well, I think I think it was a, of a time when, um, uh, like, it was like Lena Dunham and I had a movie out the same year. It was like this, <laughs> this like, new thing was happening mm-hmm. where, like, writers and actors were, like, it, and mm-hmm. women were, like, in putting themselves in their own content. Um, like, Broad City was on, a, is was doing a web series, mm-hmm. and, you know, th- there, was, there was, like, a lot of, like, this new sort of, like, way of, it was, like, Woody Allen, but like, or what we call Schmoody Schmallen now. We don't say his name anymore. Uh, um, but like, Smart. but like the idea of like putting yourself in your own content as a way of creating that content, mm-hmm. as a way of like taking out any sort of like, no, you can't do this. It's like, well, if I can just do everything, then like no one can tell me no. It's really um, smart. And it's crazy to think how. What was your movie? Bo- uh, it was called Drones. Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, it was about aliens in an office. Great. Um, it was a fun film festival. It was. It was a good time. It was real cold. They, they don't tell you that going to Utah, you guys. <laughs> Um, but it's crazy to think how recently and yet far away that was. I mean, that like that that change should have come so much sooner <laughs> like, that it felt bold is kind of alarming. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess so. I mean, we all sort of looked alike, too. Um, so I think I think that like there there's like, you know, there's like this sort of like queerish, like more like brassier white lady that like you know is sort of like fumbling there and then i think like um awkward black girl sort of like perfected Mm -hmm. that model um i think her show is just like much better than any of our first attempts at like (laughs) taking our thing to the thing um so i i i don't know i mean i I think it's like always being done but but there was like a wave there's like comes in waves you Mm -hmm. know yeah, um, and that, that was just the wave that I was riding, and it was it was a it was fun. It was a fun time. Um, I, after that, I went out and and did plays that nobody's asking for. I put them up on like Santa Monica Boulevard in L.A. There's like 49 seats in the house, mm-hmm. and I call it popping out and doing a play. I'm gonna <laughs> pop out, um, which my agents just loathe. Um, <laughs> <No kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and then and then I got into television sort of on a on on a whim. I I would always wanted to have my own show. That was like my my like 20 something year old dream. And I went in, into, you know, my manager was like, do you, maybe you need a television agent. And she told me I needed a sample. And I was like, I don't think I need that. <laughs> so I, I really have sort of carved my own path in that space, which yeah. I'm like super happy to talk about because I think that like the rules of coming up, I think are not real. That's interesting. Uh, and I do want to get back to that. So we will pick yeah. up there in a moment. Uh, but Annabelle. Hi, I'm Annabelle. Um, I uh, just wrote and directed a pilot for the TV adaptation of The Edge of Seventeen. So excited! I'm um, very excited about it, uh, and working very closely with Kelly Freeman Craig, who wrote and directed the movie, and it's Great. been a dream. Um, I started in features, and I had a script on the blacklist like uh, ten years ago. And then came out of nowhere. Came out of nowhere. (laughs) Overnight success. Uh, Yeah, been chipping away (laughs) at getting on this podcast for (laughs) over ten years. Um, You finally made it. Yeah. So I that script, you know, had a lot of heat, and I went on. I think I counted, and it was a hundred and twenty general meetings. Oh my god! In one year for that script, and could not get 
paid. Wow, that sounds like hazing. Yes, it was. It was. It was in the worst fraternity. Um, And I, uh, you know, really didn't know what to do and was doing a lot of work for free in the feature world. And then one day, this magical executive at ABC read all the blacklist scripts and said, come in. And two weeks later, I'd sold my first pilot. And um, a month later, I got my first staffing job. And so I've worked in everything from ABC Family Multicams to um, I worked on Awkward on MTV. Mm -hmm. More recently, I worked on Sirens on USA. I worked on... um, Atypical on Netflix, which is still on, and um, now I'm doing this. Well, yeah, what of these? I mean, it feels like Edge of Seventeen is probably closest to what you mm-hmm. want to do, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, maybe I'm no. Into you're that. completely <laughs> right. You know, it started. I started off in kind of a harder comedy world because that's what was there for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when things started opening up, and now there's 400 television shows, and you can do dramedy, which is the kind of stuff I was writing anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it became really like, oh, TV is now the place where I had wanted to live in in filmmaking. You know, I came in to to do these mid range kind of on the edge of independent and studio films. And that's what TV is now. So it was really great to start moving into, you know, uh, Atypical. I did a little time on Transparent Mm -hmm. and and in that area um, because I also worked on a lot of network comedies. It's valuable to have all all of those things. Sure, sure. Um, And that that is something I want to talk about is sort of the, and, and Marjorie, you brought this up, that the path that you took and how that forged what you are as a writer and what you are doing now. Um, you know, Aida, looking at what you've done, you talked about this wide range of stuff, especially in the beginning, right? When we don't yes. get to choose our jobs. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, let's go back, though, uh, to transitioning from playwright to TV writer mm-hmm. and how that took place. And, you know, why, why make that leap? Was it something you wanted was it always there you know was it a goal from the start or was it something that sort of came out of nowhere yeah a little bit it was very circuitous i went to um to college to become a neurosurgeon <laughs> and, <laughs> and you failed and it's now a you're little here. circuitous <laughs> yes. and then like, go with me go with me it's, it's all gonna happen it all, it all makes sense in my head and then um I my my father's a mathematician. I, I was raised, you know, to be unafraid of the hard sciences, and mm-hmm. I liked them very much. Um, and then when I got to college, because I'd always written poetry and short stories, all my electives were writing. Hmm. And in my second year of college, I I took a playwriting class on a lark. I'd, I'd not, never seen a play at that point in my life, oh, that's funny. and I just was like, oh, it's writing. It's another thing. And it happened to be taught by Anna Devere Smith. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I always say I went into that year, of, of, you know, a, a scientist and I came out um, <laughs> that year, um, a queer play. Um, and it was what happened in that class. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, actually, what did happen in that class? Like, what made you see like playwriting? This is not just um, the form that I like, but. This is where I want to live. Um, I think what was smart about that class was she had playwrights, but she had graduate directors attached to the class. Hmm. And so every week we wrote scenes 
every week. They took those scenes, rehearsed them yeah. for the next week, and then brought them back and staged them. Makes and a huge so difference. It, it just opened up my eyes to the possibility of drama. And it was the first writing that was three-dimensional for me. Mm. And it was from my pen two weeks later. It was in front of yeah. me and the rest of the, you know, the class. And it it was so moving because she's also, she's kind of like a documentary um playwright in that she works mm -hmm. from you know the 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 material of the world yeah. and so she was also a linguist so she's very specific about how she built her work oh, um from authentic the authentic experiences of the world so when she had our us right she had us right from those places they had mm. to be rigorous they had to be lived they you know they had to pass the smell test and so the other amazing thing about seeing that stuff reflected back is you would see your life or things that you had experienced in a way like I hadn't even processed it. Mm -hmm. Like I, I put it down sure. as quickly and as accurately as I could. And then a director took it and actors took it. And I was like, holy crap, that's <laughs> what happened. I didn't even realize all <laughs> these layers. Um, and when I realized that that's something that drama could do. I was like an addict. I was like, I, you know, made those phone calls home, mom, dad. Um, guess what? How'd that go over? Um, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I think was it, were you like, I'm a playwright and I'm gay, and they were yeah. like, you're a playwright. Kind of. Um, <laughs> I think I'd, I'd come up to them the year before. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> poor parents. <laughs> I put them through it. I love yeah. them so much. Um, and you know, to their credit, they were. I'm Canadian, and they were living on either side of the country, so I had to mm -hmm. call them separately. Uh, my mom was in Vancouver. My dad was in Ottawa. Um, and they were both so measured and and level headed, even though. Now I know they were completely freaking out. Um, you know, I think, you know, they're just parents and they want they wanted me to have an easy, sure. good life. And they were just like, you're making it so hard <laughs> on yourself. Um, we knew a lot of people in, you know, medicine and um, science and mathematicians. We did not know any writers. Yeah. Um, and uh, I knew one out gay person when I was growing up, um, who I looked up to, who's a lawyer in the community. And I was just like, yes, there's, a, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a life that yeah. can be had. It's, you know, uh, well, it's funny. We often talk about like that moment when you are usually young and recognize that, um, writing is something that people do for yeah. a living. Right. And it's funny to hear that. Like you had to recognize that being gay is something that people are. It's happens you in have the world. to know a person <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, in the same way that writing becomes a real thing. That, yeah. Like all of these things have to become real for us as, as young people. Yeah. And, and for me, it's, it's the thing of writing and being gay were real. It was just living as a writer, sure. living as an out gay person. Yeah. Those are the things that, it was very helpful to see an example of. Yeah. Um, and in the one case, I was just like, well, let me just jump off this cliff because I, you know, I have this teacher. She does it for a living and she's saying that I'm good. So let me try this. Yeah. And um, and then being a queer person, it was just like, 
one guy did it. One guy seems okay. So all it takes is one model. Um, yeah. I just really related to uh, the the moment of of like seeing your work come to life, feeling like an addiction. Mm-hmm. Or like that feeling of like, oh, I, I need that shot again. That's why I still do plays that nobody's asking for. Right. It's because like, I mean, we were just talking outside about like the the development sort of grind. And um, that's like the hardest part for me because I'm so addicted to production. I'm so addicted to like seeing the thing. Yeah. And having it breathe yeah. and live and be out there, even if it's in front of 49 people. Especially if it's in front <laughs> yes. of 49 people. <laughs> but really, I, I really, really just related to that. I feel like that is the thing in me that won't die. And when people talk about like pa- having a passion for writing, I was like, it doesn't feel like passion. It feels like compulsion. It yeah. feels like... It's something like not so cute as passion, you know, it's like, it's not as lovely as that inside of me. It's like, it's like, I have to feed the thing. Yeah. It's not always pretty, you know, like we're not always on podcasts. No, (laughs) no. And I, I, I think that for me also the, 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 the idea of like learning, I wish I had your teacher. I wish I had Mm. gone to that magical year because I did not have that. And, but I learned how to write in front of those 49 people because if, if you're honest with yourself or I found that if I was honest with myself, like I can feel something's not working and I can feel when something is working. I mean, I can, you can literally feel people like sit forward, lean back, eat chips, Yes. I'm like, oh, you're eating chips again. The same part. They don't get it. Yeah. You know, but like, but like, no, it's not that they don't get it. It's that I'm not communicating the thing well. Yeah. And like to take ownership over that and to learn that skill set, um, like that is where my confidence comes from. Mm-hmm. Is that like I know it works. I know that yeah. I am good. I like I know this draft is bad and I know I am good. And like those two things can yeah. exist at the same I time. I can make this chip proof. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or chip light. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um but I I just that was that's such a lovely um thing to remember though, that like that's where I got a skill set. Yeah, yeah. And and to try and keep it alive in whatever way you can. Because I think that that as we are in these areas where it's less about a room full of active audience members, but it is, you know, people that have are your executives or whatever. These are the people that you have to convince first, you know, how do you re- recreate that thing in yourself that, that tells you, Oh, this is working. Oh, this is not working. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let, let's dig in on that for a minute, and we'll sort of dip in and out oh of these God, origin I know, stories. But I have a question. <laughs> we'll get back to it. Okay. Um, but okay. I think this is this is a great question that you bring up of like how do, how do we keep it alive? How do we keep the thing that you know a lot of us have written for live theater, and so mm-hmm. you get that immediate reaction. But when we are in a room, mm-hmm. as you say, how do we know that we're being honest? How do we know that you're being chip proof? <laughs> I think there's only one rule that I found. There's, there's, it's what works versus what doesn't work, and it's the same thing you get to feel in the 49 seat theater um, when you're in production. And the thing I've kind of learned about figuring out what works versus what doesn't work is opening up your process 
earlier than you want to. How so? I, I think, we, you know, when I started writing, I would go away and for six to nine months, I would write something <laughs> and I'd be like, it's got to be perfect mm-hmm. before I show anybody. And I would huddle and I would go crazy. I would, mm-hmm. it, and I wouldn't show anybody anything when it was a mess. Yeah. And then it would be kind of polished. But if one part doesn't work, you start pulling a thread and then the whole thing falls apart. And then you're back in and then I would go away for another couple months and try to make it perfect and um, I don't have enough hours in my life to work that way anymore Um, and I don't think any of us do and I think when you find the people you trust and you can open up your process earlier you can start with a pitch or you can start with a first draft and Mm -hmm. say I know this is total 100% garbage but can you just tell me if anything works here. <laughs> and then you kind of throw out all the stuff that doesn't and, and kind of build around what works. Mm-hmm. But it's still really hard for me. I still still really want to give a perfect piece of paper and, and somebody give me a gold star and love. You know? <laughs> well, let's talk about this in a practical sense. Um, for Edge of 17, mm-hmm. was it? did you go in on a pitch? Did you write a script? How did this come to be? And how did you open yourself up early enough that you could get through the hard parts. Yeah, Edge of 17 was a really special, wonderful process because they came to me, mm-hmm. <laughs> which doesn't always happen. Um, I uh, I think they had been kind of meeting a lot of writers for it, and the um, Kelly Freeman Craig, the original writer-director, wasn't vibing mm-hmm. with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, quite the those writers. And um, she and I have the same manager, and I had written a directed a short film that nobody asked for. Nobody, asked for <laughs> nobody yeah, sure. wanted. Nobody wants um, my, <laughs> my agents were like, okay, and I spent months crowdfunding and raising money for it, and you know, like not working, and sure, sure. nobody got ten percent of anything because no. I just lost money. My daughter's college tuition, like it all went towards telling the story I had to tell because I have to process things. Mm-hmm. Um, in a very expensive way, apparently. <laughs> um, so she had seen that, and it was kind of a you know funny but sad you know kind of tone. And she saw it, and she said, "Yeah, that's that's what I want." So we met up, and we started talking Look about who wants it now. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Finally, see, maybe <laughs> just go. No, out. but I think that that is the yeah. ultimate lesson, though. It's yeah. that like, no, nobody does want it until everybody yeah. fucking wants it, and yes. then you're like, oh, good thing I made the thing right. that you didn't want. That, yeah, well, there, there's something to do, something you. you care about. Yeah, <laughs> and the, and there were still people who were like, "This is a good idea. You should sure. just mm-hmm. make things." Yeah, which. I 100% believe. So, yeah, so then somebody wanted it. <laughs> um, and uh, and um, Kelly's so great because she's so collaborative, and she came up under James L. Brooks, who is yeah. the same way, and we kind of had the, the ghost of his process in our process. And so we were just constantly back and forth. And what I really loved about that development process is they, you know, the network started out with a traditional, we want a one page thing about what this pilot episode is going to be. And so I wrote a one page thing and Kelly, um, my manager described Kelly as Tom Hanks and big, where like they're, they, the toy executive is showing the toy and telling you why it's fun. And he raises his hand in the back and says, I don't get it. I don't get it. So she was just like coming from features. She was looking at that process and she was like, I don't understand. Hmm. 
how are we going to write an episode when we don't know what the show is? So I said, great. And we wrote a whole Bible Mm -hmm. and we got really deep into it. And we felt like we wrote, you know, nine episodes, you know, uh, paragraphs about nine episodes. And then all of a sudden we knew what show we were making better. And then we could go back and write that one page. And to me, that is always really helpful in development now is I just figure out the whole show. I don't know how to do it (laughs) in another way. Especially the way things are now where it's not Episodes aren't one and done, right? Yes. You're telling these serialized stories. Of course, you it has it helps to have a better understanding of the whole. Yes, uh, which is so great. And so when I went in and pitched um, the studio on that show, I said, "Look, I don't really like teen shows. Um, <laughs> you know, opener. it's all it's all um, you know love triangles, and nothing happened to me when I was a teenager. <laughs> nothing. There was no plot. Nothing happened. But I still had Shakespeare." Experian highs and lows Absolutely. in my day. It's just that my highs and lows were about these small moments yeah. where I said something really stupid to my crush, <laughs> you know, or I had like weird feelings about my friend, you know, at a sleepover, and I didn't know how to process anything. And they were all these gray areas where I was really dealing with a lot of stuff alone. I was like, I've never seen mm-hmm. that on television, and I've never seen the the female friendship that. I, the female friendships that I had in high school on television, how important and crucial they were uh, to my life. So I kind of went in with with that pitch and they said, great. Yeah. I mean, that's a strong pitch. It's not hooky. Yeah. Right. But it's no. like, I'm t- I want to tell an honest story. I want to tell something yeah. that means something and to then, me. And then, yeah, I had the gift of IP. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Which is how, you know, when you look at uh, somebody like Jason Kadams and he gets to make, you know, Parenthood or Friday Night Lights, is he has the gift of IP. Somebody yeah. says, okay, this kind of low concept thing worked once. We're yeah. going to do it again. So I um, applaud anybody who can do a low concept show without IP, but uh, yeah. I, I'm point. like, I'm happy to have it. Um, it's a good segue to yeah. my low concept show without IP actually yeah, that I made at that. Amazon. Yeah. Um, so, so um, I uh, okay. So I, I the play that I wrote that nobody nobody's asking for <laughs> was the was the first play I ever directed. It was in front of forty nine people, and I went to NYU. Um, and one of my teachers had moved out here. And so I cast him in the play and it was just, it's called one in the chamber. It came out in 2014 and um, it went on to win like the LA drama critic circle award, which sounds important, but really in LA, what does it mean? Who knows? But people cared about it. I'm impressed. And it went out and I'm not saying this to double down on you, but I had to go on 500 general (laughs) meetings. I actually have a photograph of the um, business cards that I collected in that, in, in that year. It was, it was, um, Crazy. I would go on like four a day. Yeah. Generals. And let's, just, let's talk about this for a second, because I sure. think we've all done this. Like when you have yeah. that slew of meetings all within a year. Can you talk about what wasn't getting done in those meetings? And they're just general meetings for the most part. And so like what was the content and context of them? Well, so I um, I think that two things, one, having having a having a, a material in my case, having this play that I was like deeply proud of mm-hmm. that they had actually read was amazing. Like I would walk in and like, you know, men in their like fifties would be like, I like straight white men are saying to me, like you ruined my whole weekend. I ruined this. I read this play and it is so sad. Like how dare you? And I was like, you read my play. Like that's crazy that you yeah. read this play. Um, so that's really helpful. I know people who go on those generals that like, 
haven't quite like had a thing that represents them completely. And I think that those are the meetings that are a bit of a mess or, mm-hmm. or the people that don't read those, <laughs> don't sure. read the thing they're supposed to read. But even when you're walking in and, and they have read the play, how do you start to move that towards something? I don't, <laughs> I, I really don't. I, I think, I think that's a misstep. I do because I think, I think for me just like staying curious about like who that person is and why that person's here and what that person wants to make. Mm-hmm. And then whether or not that, she and I, or he and I want to make that the same thing um, is cool. One of my, my manager told me uh, early on that these meetings were just a way for them, for when I did make it, for them to be like, I know her. Right. And I totally. really appreciated that because I was like, I'm just giving them permission to say that they know me. So like, and that's <laughs> cool smart. and it's useful and like, it's oddly useful actually. Like yeah. as, as, as my, like my career has gone on, those meetings have really, been helpful. I've gotten a lot of like punch up work and production rewrite work from those meetings, e- exclusively from those meetings. I never had to do it again. I only right. only did it that one year. Mm-hmm. So and like when mm-hmm. they move jobs and now they're working in a more relevant job, totally. which they all move jobs all the time. <laughs> <clears throat> It's insane. I mean, Amazon <laughs> shit show. Yeah. Anyway, so, so at the end of that year, I walked into a meeting. This is a true story, which I don't know how useful this is because this does sound like I made it overnight, but I didn't. Okay, I, this, this is now the year is 2015. That I'm my first movie came out in 2010. Just mm-hmm. remember all of those mm-hmm. things. So, still not making it overnight. Mm-hmm. And I went in and I sold. Uh, I, I walked into Channing Tatum's production office, and he was there. And I was like, that's weird. I was like, that's, they're not usually like here. Yeah. Like they're usually like somewhere else. And he was like on a hoverboard. And I was like, talk about big. I was like, what is this movie that I'm walking into? And they had, they had a deal with HBO. They were trying, they were on the hook to like give them a project about college. And, um, they had read all my plays the assistant was a queer woman who had seen the four face liar. Awesome. And she was like, I know that woman. She can write about college. Cause that's what that movie was yeah. about. It was about like me and my friends in college. And she's like, she can write about college. And she wrote this play. That's really sad, but I think it's fine. You know? <laughs> and so they brought me in. They were like, can you write something about college? I was like, I did go to college. And Channing's like, that's awesome. <laughs> and I was like, I did a lot of cocaine. He was like, that's great. And I was like, um, I, was like, I imagine he's still on his hoverboard. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I was like, I was like, you mean like, I was like, I, you mean like that show like Felicity, but like with nudity because it's HBO. <laughs> and he was like, I can sell that right now. And I like <clears throat> walked out of the room and I like called my manager. I was like, I think I just sold something. And he was like, I don't think that that, I think it was a general. And I was like, I don't know. And then like a half hour later, I get a call from my lawyer and she was like, I have a contract like in my inbox. That's crazy. And it's like, it was this crazy contract where it was like, if it's a half hour, if it's an hour, mm-hmm. if it's a drama, if it's a comedy. <laughs> we you don't know, know it's anything like, about this. We'll see with nudity. You're like, go for it. So that was my first thing that I ever sold. Um, and wild. I got to write that and like develop that with HBO. Um, it was, uh, an incredible experience. I'd never written for television before. Hmm. Um, I come to the table with like a set of skills that are like, I can write dialogue. I know characters, but I don't know what happens, you know? (laughs) So like, so, so I really got to learn how to do that on the fly. Um, they gave me a writer's room. I had like really incredible writers in that room. They ended up passing on the show, but then Nick Hall, who was my executive HBO went to Amazon and he bought it for Amazon. So then I got to go direct the pilot last year. That's wild. What's And what's happening with it? Um, yeah. So I went and directed the pilot, uh, topple came on Jill and, and, uh, Andrea came on and EP'd it. Um, 
so but and like that sort of starts to make sense too is like in terms of like those generals like yeah. who are you most like and like like you have to edit this out what I'm about to say but like I'm like like I, you know that Jill's like very controversial in a lot mm-hmm. of ways but like what Jill did for me you can put this back in now <laughs> yeah <laughs> what Jill Soloway did for me was she made my life easier because I could then walk into rooms and be like I'm the next Jill Soloway yeah. and people are like oh Cool. Then, and then, like, when you get, like, that stamp of approval of, like, I approve this writer. So, like, I had sold another show to Amazon that Jill Soloway had EP'd. They never made that either. But it's just, like, getting paid to go do things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then this show, um, uh, we find out if it gets picked up at the end of March. Okay. So Jill will Great. run that show. Well, um, good luck. I cannot. No, you have plenty mm-hmm. going on. Yeah. Uh, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Um, but, you know, let's, let's sort of pick up where we left off, which was... You've decided to write plays. <laughs> <laughs> so you're so eighteen in our in our interview. How long does that last? And, um, and then quite, when does TV come on? Um, quite some time actually. I I graduated from Stanford. Um, I knew I wanted to write plays. I knew I wanted to be in New York writing plays because mm-hmm. that is the capital of the world of plays. <laughs> and so I, you know I had to scheme because again I'm Canadian. So I applied to <laughs> more schooling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got into Columbia. And did their MFA program in theater and with focus in playwriting. And while there, what was cool was that they, the School of the Arts has, you know, everybody in one building, just different floors. Mm-hmm. And uh, theater was on the sixth floor and um, filmmaking was on the mm-hmm. fifth floor. So when I had electives from, you know, space from theater, I was just like, let me run downstairs and see what's going on in the film school. And I took uh, a couple of film writing classes. Did you find that an easy transition? Did it make sense to you, this new language? How, what was the difference? What it was, was very hard. Curve? It's, it's kind of like what Marjorie was saying. It's, it's, I came at it with skills in terms of dialogue and character mm-hmm. and a certain flair for spectacle. <laughs> <laughs> but, but where do you mean? <laughs> That's it. Sold. But no, no real plotting yeah. skills. And um, so the things that I was trying to learn and master um, were almost antithetical to playwriting, hmm. which, you know, if, if I try to outline a play, it's the death of the play. Yeah. It, you should know what it's about. Is it because of writing. the discovery process of plays? Yeah, I think for me anyway, play, like playwriting is about literally discovering what, what it is that's inside mm-hmm. of you as you're writing it. Hmm. And for me, if, if I'm not doing that, like I'm not really writing a play, mm-hmm. I'm writing something else. Um, it might be a prose piece, it might be an essay, it might be a screenplay even, but it's not a play for me. Interesting. Um, and now that I've ha- I have more experience writing in television, writing in film, I think the outlining process, the figuring out what it is, is... I, I, I don't know how you deal without it because I've definitely gone down the tunnel of trying to write those types of um, documents without the planning. And it's a rabbit hole of, yeah. you know, it's a vortex. It's a black <laughs> hole. You can't escape it. Um, and and so I really had to learn to embrace the outline um, mm-hmm. and and then understand that there's an architecture that really can support 
your creative impulses in that medium it's a, um, in a way that you don't really need when you're writing plays. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, when did the opportunity to write daytime come? Uh, I was floundering after graduating from Wait, grad can school. I just tell you that this was my dream? This is what I thought my career was going to be. I thought <laughs> I was going to be a playwright who wrote in daytime television. That's like what I Man, wanted when, to do. Were really? you in New York at the time? Yes, because I, I went to NYU and yeah. Alec Baldwin came in and taught like a guest class. And yeah. he was like, that he used to do like theater and daytime television. Like that's what, that's like how he started. And I was like, genius, that's what I'm going to do. That's <laughs> it. So you lived my dream. The weird thing is, is like I watched a lot of daytime when I was a kid. <laughs> Because in you know in the summers we didn't go to summer camp we just sat in front of the television <laughs> yeah and you know really just yep. binged all these soaps and so I but I didn't know really that people wrote them sure <laughs> I just was like they happen every day right. and, every day um, and then when I was when I graduated from grad school. Um, just trying to end, make ends meet. I was working as a journalist for a little bit, and um, I wrote a few screenplays, you know, a couple of horrific screenplays, and then, <laughs> you know, some passable ones, and then finally, like, yeah. a decent one. And it was kind of a, a Romeo and Juliet story set with the, a couple of kids from um, juvenile jail in Chicago. Mm-hmm. They bust out, and they come to New York. And I wrote a, a screenplay about them. And that screenplay, um, you know, got to be a finalist on a couple of competitions and went out on lists. And one of the definitive people that read it was ABC Daytime Creative Executive. And I got this email just out of the blue. Hey, you know, would you be interested in writing for daytime? And I was like, that's a thing. Um, and... You know, they had a whole training process because it's a really, it's completely different than anything else. And so they do have to train you how to do it. So I I did a 13 week training program and it took a long time to be hired um, because getting those jobs is like essentially getting a judgeship. Nobody's giving them back. There's so few writers. (laughs) You know, Um, there was, and I'll just interject for a second to say we had the showrunners of General Hospital on. Maybe a year ago, a little over a year ago. So oh, I would cool. really urge people to go listen to that because it's yeah. it's a different world of TV writing. It's really interesting. So I imagine if it worked the same way, you were being sent either episodes or scenes and then you just had to execute like all yes. the time, right? Yes. So basically it's like because it's, you're, you know, it's five shows all year long, you Nothing flows backwards in the production process. Right. Everything flows forwards. You're not doing your rewrites. There's nothing happening like Sounds that. It's just nice. go, go, go. It's excellent. You're a machine. Um, yeah. You know, and and they really just have to make sure that you can do it um, because you'll you'll mess up the production line if you if you yeah. can't. So they train you up um, to get your first job. You you know you have 90 days, and they send you everything. They send the writers, and then you watch the show obsessively over that time and then you pick a day and you say you've got the outline for the the script and and you say I'm going to write this from this outline mm-hmm. and and you write it and then they get it and they read it and they decide if you're good enough and they tra- you know they put you on a test contract and then right. hire you and I was a script writer 
for almost five years. Wow. Uh, working for One Life to Live. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. That's I did long this. Time. I did it. And what? what? <laughs> yeah, like, so during those five years, like, if, first of all, it, it just must be an amazing crash course in just yes. writing TV and scene work and character work. How many pages were you churning out, you know, every week? Um, we, the, the script writers, so the way it is, it's like you have head writers and outline writers mm-hmm. and the head writers, you know, they create the broad plan and then they work with the outline writers to make sure it, it conforms to, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, right. what, what's happening. And the outline writers have like a day or two to go write a very detailed outline for an episode. And then you have the script writers and we get those outlines and then we have six days to mm-hmm. turn around the episode. Um, and that's every week, yeah. you know, so you're writing an episode a week as a script writer. That's wild. And, um, and that's what I was doing. And so essentially I was a playwright that was very precious about my work as well. <laughs> I kept it yeah. and I nurtured it and I fed it. Um, and did not let people into my process until I felt, you know, I absolutely had to. And soap writing really broke the habit almost instantaneously because you just, you're, you're churning it out. And what was great about it for me was it actually, um, freed me to trust my first instincts, mm-hmm. not apply mm-hmm. that backspace button. And that actually kind of, freed my voice yeah, in a absolutely. way that you'd think, you know, being like a um, playwright would. Like, <laughs> daytime writing really yeah. allowed me to be much bolder in my first impulses and just trust it. That makes a lot of it. sense. That's a great lesson, which I assume you have now taken with you. Yeah. Uh, that's that's really great. That's really valuable. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, talking about opening up your process earlier and all these general meetings we all went on mm-hmm. and kind of what Marja was saying is... Um, I do think one mistake uh, when you start in the industry and you come in is you think you have to meet the person mm-hmm. w- th- four levels above you who's mm-hmm. going to bring you up. And really that lateral networking, meeting all those junior executives mm-hmm. who have zero power, <laughs> meeting other writers who have nothing going on, <laughs> you know, who are just as broke and mm-hmm. um Aimless as you, those are the people who become your people. Mm-hmm. You know, the ones who who hang in there and stay on the train <clears throat> are the people. So I think, you know, if you are a young writer, think about lateral networking. Um, it, it, I think it's even more important than I, finding that big person to I'm, bring you up. I think you're genius. I think that that's so right. And I and I also just think saying yes to things that yeah. we, we all have had these like very odd beginnings, <laughs> but like it's because we said yes. Like, yeah. I mean, I think that we deserve a lot of credit for saying yes, <laughs> but, like, but like a lot of playwrights say no because like they're yeah. too good or mm. that they mm-hmm. can't write that fast or whatever, but like just say yes. I mean, yeah. I've had some odd gigs <laughs> um, but but like one of one of the oddest ones like really turned out to be like the a definitive turning point my I never worked in the studio system before. Um, I was still, you know, writing. Like I had sold, I'd sold some some specs. I had sold some pilots, but I had never like gotten hired by somebody right. to like actually start something. And um, I got hired by TriStar <laughs> to write uh, the adaptation of the 
book Lean In. <laughs> now for feature film? For a feature film. Now listen, okay. here, here, let me pitch it to Go you better. On. Let me pitch it to you better. <laughs> no, your mind's gonna be blown. Talking. Okay. This, this this sounds like a dream I had, but it's real. So so their idea was that they were going to do lean in in the style of like love actually. So a bunch of like vignettes of women working. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Don't stay with me. Like stay a with classic me. Classic Gary Marshall holiday Class. movie. <laughs> so I'm at the meeting. I'm sipping my bottle of water. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm still invested, okay. but I'm not quite there yet. So, so like, so like, this is not a dream job for me but the amount of money that they're willing to pay me and <laughs> I was like dream. awesome that's mm-hmm. a dream and also I hear this like little rumor that like it's not just me it's a bunch of writers and that I'm the most junior writer and I'm like who hmm. the F did they get to do this so I show up to TriStar on a Monday morning and the women who are writing these vignettes include but are not limited to Tracy Oliver <laughs> Eileen Shaken, <laughs> etc. That's crazy. It's like a bunch of like future and past showrunners, yeah. yeah. and and we're all women plus. So like I remember like Tra- Tracy sat next to me and she was like, "I'll go ahead and do the uh, black narrative." <laughs> and I was like, "I love you." And then I'm sitting across from Eileen Shaken and I'm like, "What am I here for?" Like, you yes. know? You're the and youngest then, one. And, yeah, I was like, I was like, "What do I do here?" And like the executives were like, "Could you please write the Latina storyline?" I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> uh, couldn't find a Latina. So. Not a great time. It was 2015. <laughs> okay, yes. things have gotten better. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, those were the days. Those were the days. Four years ago. It's mm-hmm. different. Um, but uh, but that's how I met Eileen. Mm-hmm. Um, was in that room, hmm. um, and uh, it w- it changed my life. Like, and I, it was just my level of enthusiasm is why she remembered me. Is because I was just so fucking stoked to be there. Yes. <laughs> 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 and to like get paid and like crack this story, and I felt like I had a lot to prove because like I was I was sure. I was the most junior person in there. Like mm-hmm. um, everyone else had worked in the studio system before, but like these young executives were taking a chance on me, and also from those generals. Like that's who it sure. was. It was like you know another queer lady was like I'll remember you, yeah. um, and uh, that's what those. It's to find your people. It's like it's that's how I looked at like those yeah. generals. It's like you're not gonna you know. Also, I have incredible management, and I was like, I don't want to meet any more straight white men. And he was like, Yes, ma'am. And I never did. I really never did. And, or, or if I did meet one, there was like somebody else in the room. They would bring somebody else in. They don't want to meet me. Yeah, they always want to meet me. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Now yeah. yeah, totally, totally. So how did you? How does that turn into running the L word four years later? Um, it's funny. Eileen did an interview like right before me, and I read it, and I was like, Oh yeah. I forgot about that one other thing, which is also great advice. Mm -hmm. I mean, the best advice is to, like, sincerely congratulate people. Hmm. um, Yeah. Because... Be that's a, how be I a say person be is a the root person. of that. Oh because yes. so I so I started watching The Handmaid's. So I did that room. Mm-hmm. Um, believe it or not, movie not getting made. <laughs> Lean in the movie. Oh, not weird. not a go. Shocker. Not a Shocker. green light. I know. Wow. It's fine. Tracy Oliver and I are doing well. Um, <laughs> sh- uh, so that happened in 2015, and then two years later, a year later, maybe. Um, Handmaid's Tale came out and I was like obsessed with the Handmaid's Tale and I see Eileen's name come up as an executive producer and so I shot her an email and I was like I'm obsessed with this I think you're a genius (laughs) and she was like do you want to come in and pitch for the new L word and I was like what? 
Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I thought you were going to be like, you want to direct The Handmaid's Tale. And I was going to say yes. Um, this is good, too, though. Yeah, totally. I'll, I'll do that. I think Reed's got it. You know, I don't think she needs me. Um, but uh, uh, I don't know her. <laughs> it sounded like I did. She but seems I, cool. I don't. She, seems, she seems like she's got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't need me. Um, so presumably you got more information. Um, yes. Did you, had you watched The L Word? Were you ready yeah, to so go I talk was, about this? So I was 19 when The L Word came out. I am gay, in case you can't mm-hmm. tell by the tenor of my voice. <laughs> um, I, uh, I... I, I, that show meant everything to me. Like I, between like that and kissing Jessica Stein, like those were the two like lesbian things that happened in the early aughts that I that allowed me to believe that I could just write lesbian mm. love stories and like that could be my whole career. Um, that hadn't really like occurred to me at all. I was still trying to write like buddy comedies with like two guys on a college campus, which was like the first thing I ever sold. It was like mm-hmm. a movie called Fucked about two guys who wanted to get fucked and kept getting fucked over. Mm-hmm. So like I also came up under like super. Super bad, you know, so like I was trying to figure out how to work. I just wanted to work. Um, And uh, so, yes, I'm very familiar with the L word. Uh, I I got to my first meeting was just with Eileen and she was like, you know, we're we're looking for somebody to bring it back. And I I was like, okay. Um, And she's like, we're looking for someone to like address the things that didn't go well and the things that went well and like mm-hmm. to carry over the things that did and I was like yeah and she's like do you know what I mean and I'm like yeah oh <laughs> <laughs> so I was also there you know? um, and I was like okay and then like she asked me to meet her again to like keep talking about like te- keep breaking uh, characters so basically mm-hmm. I'm bringing forward like 10 new characters um, it's a lot of new characters um, uh, I'm bringing there's like there were no Latinas in the cast originally. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in Los Angeles. That felt like a misstep. And, um, you know, trans representation wasn't great. Uh, but I think it's worth just noting uh, that, like, no one else was even trying. Right. Absolutely. You know? mm-hmm. like, yeah. And it was a different time. And and I I think she deserves a lot of credit. And, and the thing that, like, occurs to me daily is, like, I'm going to get something wrong, and I don't know what that is yet. Mm-hmm. You know? And I can't wait for some, like, 30-year-old shithead to, like, come at me in, like, 15 years and be like, I right. can do this better. And I'm like, okay. Reboot three. Don't go <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah. that's exciting, though. I think it's really exciting. And, like, just, I, I think the thing that, like, I really took away from just, like, working with her, she's like, no ego man she's just like so excited to have this thing like back on the air and she's just she's just so excited that like i'm excited that's great yeah um she's not precious that's i think i feel like if you were to title this episode something (laughs) like don't be precious feels like the thing that we're all trying to say because it's it's hard and but but the criticism is really necessary and the fact that she can take it like not just from me but like from the press too and she's like no no I know that was not right to put that cis lady in a beard mm-hmm. I heard you mm-hmm. I heard you and I'm like hmm. <laughs> that's, different. that's different you know what I mean that's like yeah, not the response that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah just own it it's okay it's okay that you messed up that, that thing um, it's okay that like you know you had like an Iranian actress play this Latina it's okay actually mm-hmm. but like you have to say it you have to say that you fucked up and mm-hmm. she does um, and I get to go like do that and then have like you know lesbians on screen having sex again it's gonna be great you know <laughs> I'm so excited do you have a, <laughs> <laughs> do you have a premiere date yet mm, first week in November oh great 
All right. Awesome. Congratulations. Um, I have a couple mm-hmm. more things that I just want to touch on. Um, let's talk about why for a minute. All right. Uh, how is this... How is this a natural progression of what you do, what your interests are? <laughs> <laughs> um, where where are you in this show? I think I'm actually in definitely in the character of three five five. It's it's one of the one of the things that I thought was brilliant about the the books, and that I wanted to expand on in hmm. our in our show was just this representation of this um, black woman who was tasked with, you know, keeping alive the last man on earth who happens to be white and, you know, what it means for her to give up her life um, in that way, you know, wasn't Hmm. really questioned in the books. No, that's interesting. And it's something that we are absolutely going into in this. Um, And, and really, Mining what that dyad handcuffed through history really means mm. in this in in this new manless world that that Brian Pia created. So I, for me, it's like there's something about these times that is just like, is this a utopia? I mean, what you know? There's, there's it's it, it's all all of the ideas that we get to deal with is to me it's a natural progression of all the things I'm asking myself now, and I I try to work on things that. Um, contain the questions that I mm-hmm. currently have or to inject questions that I currently have like existentially about living in this world into that stuff. So it's, so I'm never caricaturing something. So I'm never just kind of like doing some weird do-si-do role play, but mm-hmm. it's it's alive. And yeah. um, why is just this, I mean, it's a world where women take over, you know, um, after something terrible happens and and i want to know what female leadership in all the flawed and awesome capacity can look like um and it's a different conversation than it was 25 years ago yeah when it was started and and i love again that the book creators are open to that just like what you're talking about eileen it's just like they're very like this is a product of its time. We love it. We love what it did then, but please, you mm-hmm. know, bring it to now and um, inject your your passions into it. And that's having that freedom, you know, not having people like the kind of checking over your shoulder and being like, yeah. make it like this it's great. Um, is a gift. Yeah. It's, it's just a gift because I, um, at a time like the times that we're living through now, like I think call for something like this mm-hmm. um, and to be able to get it to a place where your people are arguing about it, but laughing and like the, the tone of it, which is, which is, it's a tightrope yeah. of uh, cheekiness, boldness, spectacle, yeah. and like, and then some really heart rending stuff. Which I feel like is all the best TV we're getting now yeah. is right. Mm-hmm. Is a tone that can't be can't be replicated on another show. That's right. very personal. It's very specific. Like yeah. that's that's the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also this has come up a lot in the past year, year and a half. That like it feels like you can't. You have to write a show about something these days. You can't write a show that's just a show. You know, you can't. <laughs> there's no place for that in our world. Whether you know, you're well, I just want to ask, issues. like, what is a sh- what is just a show? Because I don't. Like, what, like you know friends. what I mean? Oh, like it? Yeah, it kind of was. I mean, yeah. 
Got it. So it's like, <laughs> I have the answer. Yeah, so I was like, I don't even, in my mind, I'm like, what would that be? Because uh, Friends uh, my was about. The car. Yeah. Friend, friends to me was about something. Yeah. What was it about? It was about these white friends in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the original pitch. Well, it was, it was the original pitch. It was white living single. That was well, the original yes, pitch. That's all they said in the bedroom, <laughs> and it sold immediately. I mean, yeah. yeah we, we, we talked no. to Marta, and she did have, like, they did know what that show was. It's yeah. about the time in your life when your friends are your family. And that mm-hmm. is about something. But I think what we're talking about now is... How do you write about something that's not a big bigger than you, mm. right? That's not a bigger mm. social issue, uh, whether it's you know something about race or sexuality mm-hmm. or gender or yes. class or whatever it is. You know, it feels like that needs to be baked in today. To me, it's mm. like it's not that like you can't just write a show. It's like you get to yeah. just not write a show. <laughs> you know, for me, at the seventeen, I was like, I want to talk about the gray areas of teen girl sexuality mm-hmm. right. um, with actual, you know, uh, you know, teenage characters talking about things that are we couldn't do before because they would be TVMA and you couldn't put that anywhere. And now right. you can, but it's not a raunchy comedy. We're just yeah. talking about those things. Yeah. 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 I think that's a good that's a good point. Um, and I think that's something. All of you are doing. I think that's what more and more writers are doing. And I think it comes down to to getting to tell personal stories that other people haven't told before, right? That those opportunities are now a little more present. Yeah. Well, with the proliferation of all the, you know, the streaming um, giants and all of the different channels, it's like you have to, I I think the, the medium has changed enough and expanded enough and it's like it's global at this point like you you actually have to tell different stories yeah. there's no it's we're not the four channels anymore and I don't think we could get away with just you know well it's about these these cops um, right. copping like, <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be about something more. I um, I made a movie for Netflix uh, last year. Well, I shot in 2016, and when I when I went to go, they they had already read the script. I went in to go pitch on it as a director. This is the other thing too that I was hearing in your story. This idea of like going to make that short. It's almost like a stopgap measure of like of people being like, what kind? So what kind of stuff do you like to do? Mm. Or like, yes. right, yeah. what? Yes. What's your voice? What's your thing? Mm-hmm. Or or I wanted to direct this. Pi- I wanted to direct my pilot that I did for Amazon. And I could feel people like right on the edge of saying no to me. And I was like, how do I get them to not say no to me? It's like, well, I have to go make a movie. And then they can't say no to me anymore. (laughs) And so I went out and I made this like $2 million movie for Netflix. Um, And when I went in to go pitch as a director, I brought in an article from New York Times Magazine that was like, we're into bass hits too. It was like the title of it. And it was basically that. It's like, it's like if you can hit a specific space, if your movie, my movie is about like the hair, like the opioid crisis in Los Angeles, like for like, uh, you know, upper middle class white people, the way it's affecting like those families. And like, that is like a very specific space. And they were like, we're into that. Like we're (laughs) into like that bass hit. Yeah. Like we don't need home runs. It helps to show people what you can do, what you're interested in, at yeah. least one aspect of it. Yeah, this. I feel lucky to be coming up right now because I, you know, I think Edge of 17 is probably the sixth pilot I've sold, but mm-hmm. the first one that, that has been produced. Um, but there was another one I sold that um, I wrote. It was a half hour. It was kind of in the dramedy space. And they said, look, this is the best written pilot we've gotten this year but we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what director to pair with it. We don't know what actors would be in it. We just don't understand 
if the tone doesn't seem like it would fit with anything else we have. Um, so thank you very much. Here's your money, which I was grateful for the money. <laughs> sure. Um, and th- around then was when I was like, ooh, maybe I have to start making my own things to mm. prove that this tone is a thing that can work. Um, and then when I had kind of a story that, you know, I had to tell, uh, that's when it happened. But I wanted yeah. to talk about something else we were talking about earlier. It's like the ego and the preciousness. And that, <laughs> I mean, there's a reason so many people in this industry meditate and like do yoga and yeah. are into all these sort of things is because it is a constant wrestling with your ego, especially to me as a TV writer, when you start out and you're in rooms and you're at the bottom of the totem pole and you drive home every day and you're like, oh, I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. Why did I say that? And I think whenever you feel like you're getting caught in that trap, you just have to think about the work. Mm-hmm. And so anytime you feel yourself like, I'm so stupid, I'm such an idiot, you just think about how you can make that show better. You know, what can you give to that show? And, and when can you return to the work? Because whenever you do start just returning to the creative problems and the creative questions, then that's when your ego starts to <laughs> to go away. Totally. Until you find that magic of what works. Well, I think, you know, Annabelle and Aida, you guys have had the benefit of working on a number of other people's shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, especially, like, having done Jessica Jones and Luke Cage, that's not just, you know, Cheo's show or yeah. Melissa's show. That's Marvel's show and it's Disney's show. Like, mm-hmm. you have to let go of your ego. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. like, there's so many other people who are controlling this thing that all you can do is the best job you can do, right? Um, we do need to wrap up. Um, I want to ask one thing very quickly. What's going on with Splash? Ah, that was the one thing I was trying to avoid. <laughs> we can cut that out right now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, I didn't get, like, fired, but basically I did. Well, it's a movie. Everyone gets yeah, fired. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do another, yeah. we'll do another <laughs> podcast where we all talk about the movies. We, we get fired. fired. Yeah. Like, it's not getting made. Yeah. And, like, yeah. and, like, you know. Enchanted, too. Got fired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me make sure there's nothing else I wanted to touch on. That's it. We'll wrap up as we always do by asking you what you are watching on television these days. What is getting you excited or inspired? Uh, let's talk about movies too. Anything that you're putting into your brain, uh, books that's getting you, you know, inspired. Pen fifteen. Pen fifteen. My friend Gabe ran it, and we—he uh, was a showrunner, and the creators were also mm-hmm. showrunners on it. And you know, I would hear stories about they, you know, they had you know very limited resources to make that show, and I was just like, "Ooh, good luck!" Like it sounded really rough, and then it has broken out in this amazing way, and like connects with this yeah. time. It is so funny. Um, pen 15, uh, because, <laughs> um, I, uh, so Maya Erskine, who is one of the showrunners and stars of the, of that show, she is in my first movie. She's in six balloons. Um, and she has like a very small part in the beginning. And so I think I discovered her. <laughs> and you absolutely did. I absolutely yes, you found her. You dusted her off. Yeah, now she shines. Like yeah, she she came out of nowhere. Thank you, Marcia. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, Thank you what, for giving us Pen Fifteen. You're welcome. So I made Pen Fifteen. Yeah, it sounds like it. What else, Aida? What are you watching? Uh, I just finished uh, Russian Doll on Netflix, yes. and that was tremendous. Yeah. I loved so it. I, I was hoping you were gonna be like, I just finished. Pen 15. <laughs> <laughs> one show. There's one show on. That's actually a show I wasn't even aware of, but now I'm going to check it out. Yeah, I, I made it. Yeah. Yeah. Russian Doll was so, you know, the nice thing about Russian Doll, and this is, again, like not just making a show, is it has a 
real point of view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can feel the people behind it, but not in a, uh, you know, yeah. horrible narcissist way. You <laughs> right. can feel the people behind it and it feels good. Yeah, I agree. What what else has that now? Uh, I know we're sort of in a lull before things start up again, but mm-hmm. like we've had a good couple of years of television. What what has a point of view? What has an authorial voice that you've really enjoyed? I think Atlanta has mm-hmm. an amazing point of view. I'm still watching Broad City with like my mm-hmm. mouth wide open. Like I can't believe how smart those people yeah. are. And it really mm-hmm. feels like it's just them on the page too. It's, it's like incredible. They're getting to do what they want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I was actually loving both seasons of Atypical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought that, like, I didn't even know what to expect, and I thought it was tremendous. I loved it. Well, good. We'll get you guys uh, all back here <laughs> and to none talk of about us all read. these things. No books. Books are fine. <laughs> I can watch 12 episodes of what a series in a weekend. We're going to read a book yeah. for entertainment. Yeah, as soon as it gets dark. <laughs> Just kidding, books. I love you. <laughs> Thank you all so much for being here. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank you. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.